So when game six rolled around, I was trying to kill Mr. Clean. I get to game six, and everybody there is trying to kill somebody or trying to kill me. Let me tell you, there wasn't nobody at that game that wasn't on the tape. And when the violence kicked off, shit went to shit. Everybody was shooting at everybody else in a kind of smoke and aces type situation. You ever see smoke and aces? It's really great. They do the thing I love in movies where they introduce a huge actor, Ben Affleck, in that instance. And you think he's going to be the star, but then out of nowhere, they kill him off. And you're like, whoa, what is going on? By the way, Ray Liotta still has gas in the tank. Smoke and Aces was released nationwide on December 26th, 2006. It features an all-star cast headlined by Jeremy Piven and was not well received by the general public. But it rules. It's sick. There's like a bunch of dudes trying to kill this one guy. Everybody has a crazy backstory. It's just awesome. It's pedal to the floor badass like the whole time. Yeah. So that's how we're going to tell the story of this episode. Like it's Smoke and Aces. Yeah, we're going to do this episode like it's Smoke and Aces. First inning, Ricky the Weasel. I'm trying to kill Mr. Clean, and boy am I having a hard time with it. I tried the car bomb, accidentally hooked it up to the wrong car, killed the UPS driver. I tried the godfather gun in the bathroom thing. Somehow, the gun got flushed down the toilet, whole restaurant got flooded. I tried slipping poison in his drink, got our drinks mixed up. I ended up drinking the drink. Also, turns out I got the wrong kind of poison, and it just ended up making me want to dance. And also, I can't get in trouble for saying this because none of it worked. So stop smiling and acting like you tricked me into saying something. With Ricky the Weasel's first three attempts all failing in the course of a few hours, the Gambino family had all hands on deck. They activated every soldier they had and called in every favor. The first guy to try to kill Mr. Clean during the game was O.J. Simpson. See, O.J. owed us millions of dollars after a bad golfing game. And the boss told him to go out there, throw out the first pitch like he was supposed to, and stab Mr. Clean on the way out. This guy gets to the mound, throws the first pitch about 50 feet away from home plate, then runs down into the dugout. Got cold feet. And I ran up to him and I said, why the fuck didn't you stab that guy? And he said, I could never do that to someone in a million years. We were friends. True story. As he said in his deposition, Ricky the Weasel got his idea for an assassination attempt from the silver screen. Touch of evil? You ever seen that? You probably haven't. 1958, Orson Welles and Charlton Heston. First shot, Jesus, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. First shot, guy straps a car bomb to a car. Car drives around for five minutes in a tracking shot. Tension ratchets and ratchets in the tracking shot, and at some point, you forget about the bomb you're so enthralled with the mise-en-scene. And then the second you do, bam, explosion. So I thought of something similar to that. And we are underway as Earl Harbor winds up and delivers the first pitch to Gambino's shortstop Gilmore Deeds, who lines it back up the middle, and look out, Earl. Oh, shit. Second base just exploded. I promise that wasn't me that time. I didn't shoot my gun. My gun's not loaded. Yet. I thought that was a slam dunk. I mean, what are the odds he is it there instead of somewhere else? Did you never consider the possibility that someone else could have stepped on second before Mr. Clean did? No, I did not. Why? Play was only stopped for five minutes as the grounds crew quickly swept the infield for more bombs. Nobody was hurt, so nobody made a big deal about it. As Cedric Entertainer put it after, Sometimes bases blow up. 
We did an exhibition game in Belgium, and that field was built on a bunch of World War II landmines. They thought they got them all. They didn't. Play resumed, and on the next pitch, Francis Bipok hit what should have been a run-scoring double, but turned into a double play as both runners were afraid to step on the bags and were tagged out. I had other plans. Second inning, Dr. Cassidy Punch-A-Train. Hello? Bonsoir. Can y'all boys hear me? I'm on a fan boat right now. We got a whole mess of cognac that we're hauling up to a wedding. Dr. Ponch to train, what was your role in the Pickers organization? Well, I guess you could call me a medicine man, but I ain't allowed to do medicine no more. After my business with the Reverend and his their baseball team, my license to practice got thrown out of ever passion, Louisiana. What do you remember about game six of the 1979 World Series? Well, I remember I was doing my usual thing, sitting in the dugout on top of overturned bucket, playing a washboard, till about the second inning. That's when I looked out on the field and saw Open White standing at the plate, looking like the ghost of himself. And that's when he took a fireball from the Israelites up on the mound, got him in the flank. Most players shake that off, but Open, he flew about five feet back, started hossing up something green, stanky all over the grass. This wasn't anything new, correct? Opie White had been sick for a very long time. Well, he is slowing down, but I'm not sure I like the tone of voice what y'all getting at. Dr. Ponch to train. What was the diet that you prescribed Opie in your time as team doctor? Well, for breakfast, we gave him a Nagadoches Neapolitan. That's a recipe of my grandpappas. A block of cheddar cheese, a block of pepper jack cheese, and then you'll slap some cream cheese in the middle. You're eating like a cattle berine. Lunchtime was a cheesecake. An hour later, he would snort a line of that Reverend's house brand of cheese whiz. For dinner, y'all ever heard of Shaquille O'Neal? Yeah. But he real good ball player. He played for Coach Dale Brown up in Louisiana State. He had a garlic butter fountain up at his wedding. And uh, we had one of them for Opie's mozzarella sticks. Dr. Ponch to train, I am going to propose a thought to you that came to us almost immediately when we were researching. I'm not sure I like your tone, but yes. Do you think that Opie White might have been lactose intolerant? Oh, oh. lactose intolerance. That's why well, that's for Methodists. What happened after he was hit with the ball? Well, I ran out of there and I gave him a pinch of snuff. Like chewing tobacco? No, no, that mess will kill you. I snuff was like that bag of pizza blend shredded cheese that y'all get at the store. You ever entertain a company and you want to serve some pizza bagels or nachos and you'll sprinkle that on top? Well, we took it like it was chewing tobacco and we would pack a hammer under his lip. Whole team did it. Dr. Ponch to train, I'm going to guess that that didn't help. No, it did not. We pulled him out the game. Dr. Ponchatrain, you must understand that it's extremely possible that you... Oh, uh, I'm, I'm afraid we just pulled up to the docks and there's a lot of thirsty, voluptuous bridesmaids who are chomping at the bit for some cognac, so I must bid you adieu. Third inning, Carl Carter. I, um, I am Carl Carter, n- nephew of President Jimmy Carter. These clips are taken from a documentary about the 1980 presidential election called The Worst Thing That Ever Happened to America. I, I used to play baseball professionally. I was a catcher 
uh, most notably for the Nashville Pickers during the 1979 World Series. And um, that's when everybody got really, really mad at me, and they took it out on my Uncle Jimmy. Carl Carter was famously a choker. His inability to come through in big moments ended up costing Jimmy the 1980 presidential election. People disliked Carl so much that many joked they would rather have Carl Carter sent to Iran in exchange for the hostages. It was later revealed that two days after his signing by the Pickers, the Reverend's church was granted an exemption from taxes and also all other crimes. In the third inning of Game 6, as the Pickers had two men in scoring position with no outs, Carl Carter made history. And, oh great, Carl Carter's up. That should be something. And, yep, of course, Carl Weekly grounds one to the shortstop who throws it to third, then to second, and on to first. Carl is laying in the batter's box as his pants fell down when he hit the ball. God almighty, I wish nothing but pain and suffering on this man. My, uh, my belt came undone, and I, I thought about asking for a new one, but was afraid the training staff would think I was being annoying. As a result, the triple play happened, and then the AIDS crisis followed. So through three innings, we were scoreless. But the real action was just beginning in the stands. Fourth inning, Hattie McDaniel. The Pickers mascot was a giant cowboy hat with legs named Hattie McDaniel. I have a picture here. Is the hat also wearing a hat? Yeah, that's right. That's where the phrase a hat on a hat comes from because everybody thought that mascot was just so stupid. But Ricky the Weasel had a plan. The Pickers mascot was our biggest Nashville Coke dealer. So after I barely missed my attempts to kill Mr. Clean, we leaned on Nick Santana to kill Mr. Clean. This from Nick Santana's court testimony. I just put the big hat costume on when Ricky the Weasel pushed me into the ground and started yelling in the face that was on the hat. Ricky the Weasel corroborates this. I told that big ugly hat to shoot Mr. Clean. The guy goes, how do I do that? I'm just a hat. I said, don't play dumb with me, you scumbag. You got a t-shirt gun, right? So we tweaked a couple screws on the t-shirt gun, made it so I could fire grenades. Unfortunately, as I realize now talking to you, that Hattie's outfit made it impossible for him to hold the gun with both hands. So he was only able to shoot it from the hip, which made it very difficult for him to aim, resulting in him sort of just aimlessly firing grenades into the stands. I remember because that really nervous guy was pitching a gem for the Gambinos. He was pitching and I had the grenade t-shirt cannon pointed right at Mr. Clean in left field. Unfortunately, someone bumped into me. And I shot a grenade into the Brethren's Choir of Orphans as they did an a cappella cover of the guitar solo from Layla. Oh man, those kids were singing the instrumental part from Layla by Derek and the Dominoes as the grenade hit them. I mean, the sheer violence of the moment, coupled with the pastoral nature of the song, made it into this totally sublime moment that the best of Scorsese seldom accomplishes, maybe mixed with something on the level of Terrence Malick. I mean, really raw stuff. I cried. The second the grenade exploded, people in the stands started shooting. Looking back, I remember walking into the stadium and seeing a lot of guys with bouquets of flowers and violin cases. Didn't think much of it at the time, but it's now clear that there were several dozen hitmen brought in by Ricky the Weasel. 
Kind of like that one movie, you know, the one with uh, Jeremy Piven. When the shooting stopped in the fourth inning, 65 people were dead. A lot of players pleaded for the game to come to a close, but Carmine Gambino and Reverend Ted Roper agreed, fuck it, it's game six. These days, who has time to wait in line at the store? You need a Red Bull, or one of those Reese cups that are shaped like eggs. Reese eggs have the best peanut butter to chocolate ratio. You could be waiting in line for five hours, and paying for those items costs way too much. And we've solved both of those problems together with this week's sponsor of A Closer Look, Stealing from CVS. There is no greater rush than walking out of CVS with roughly $20 worth of stuff in your pocket. My CVS has a shitty produce section, and when I roll a lime down my jacket sleeve and walk out, I feel like Ocean's 12, the best one. Nobody at CVS is going to stop you. That security guard at the door, he's there for show. He's not actually going to do anything. He'll actually get in trouble if he does. And why would he want to? You know how in the movies when robbers are like, we're here for the bank's money? It's like that, but with wheat thins. Those are the bank's wheat thins. He doesn't get to eat them. Last week, I stole a box of disposable razors from CVS. And now every morning when I shave, I'll cut myself just a little bit. Not enough to do any damage, just to remind myself of that powerful, primal feeling of doing something a little bad. Some people might have reservations about stealing, but did you know that CVS donates a portion of their profit to death squads in Bosnia? I is that true? Uh -huh. I think so. Whatever helps me feel good with stealing. Those people buying Old Spice might as well be putting the muzzle of a Mosin Nagant to Farmer Zoran's head and pulling the trigger. Can you live with that, listener? Being a murderer? I know I can't, and that's why I steal from CVS. Fifth inning, Alan Woody. I was already pretty nervous going into the game. I left my inhaler on the plane. The murders in the stands did not help, by the way. Also, there was a lot of dust left in the air from the explosions, which did not do any favors for my allergies. I mean, I'm not being unreasonable here. There were a lot of guys with guns hanging around, which is very scary. Very scary indeed. The following excerpts are from Alan Woody's autobiography, The Whiny Sidewinder. Nobody had scored in the game up to the fifth inning, which really made me quite skittish. All those zeros up on the scoreboard taunting me. I just wanted somebody, anybody to score on either team. Alan Woody was so anxious on the mound that he required several visits from his therapist. People always comment on me needing to talk to my therapist when I'm pitching. What the fuck is this? I told you to cut this guy. I don't care what his ERA is. I'm done with the fucking couch. Man up and drink a fucking beer. They tried to make me go to anger management. I said, I'm the nicest son of a bitch in New Jersey until one of you fucks with me. You do not want to make an enemy of John Drama. But I'm fine. All right, Alan Woody is pitching again, and goddamn, his stuff looks good. He is dealing. But this inning, Alan Woody had reason to be more nervous than he had ever been. Because before he walked out to the mound, he received a request from Mr. Clean. 
and I'm walking out of the dugout and I feel myself roughly grabbed by a pair of rough callous steel worker hands. And I thought to myself, oh, great, two more trips to my chiropractor. And it was Mr. Clean and he said he wanted a word with me, which was surprising because up to this point, Mr. Clean had never acknowledged my existence. I think he was more of a Dostoyevsky guy and he saw me as kind of a Tolstoy type. Either way, I was surprised when he spoke to me and even more surprised to hear what he had to say. He said, Four Eyes, I need you to go out and get every batter from here on out to hit it to right field. Can you do that for me? And I said, of course, I'm a tremendous pitcher. Just don't ask me to shower fully nude or bring Goldie Hawn to orgasm. God, this is long. Yeah, he likes to talk, so we're just kind of kind of skip a sec. And he told me he's stooping Isabella Gambino. And I said, oh, my, that's very juicy gossip. She's a fine looking young lady. If you're trying to get murdered, that's a good way to go out. And he said, no, I'm trying to live. So make me involved in every play because no baseball fan would kill someone while they're trying to feel the baseball. Alan Woody held the pickers scoreless again with only four batters in the inning. It would have been a one 2 three inning, but an error was charged to the Gambinos after a routine pop fly landed in the outfield because Mr. Clean was being chased by a pit bull. Sixth inning, Ken Burns. After the gruesome and vomitous injury to Opie White, Ken Burns was called in to take his place. A utility player on a number of subpar teams, this was his first and last time in the spotlight. He played so badly that he would retire from baseball in the offseason to focus on his childhood dream of making PBS documentaries for people to fall asleep to. This is from a phone interview that we did with Ken Burns. Ken Burns kept talking about himself in the third person as if he was a Civil War soldier. Ken replaced Opie White after Opie's near-death experience in the bottom of the first. He played fine up until the sixth inning, when... My dearest Joanna... Your caress reminds me of the crest of a grass-besotted hill in Babahoona County, Ohio. I long for your sweet embrace. Joanna is... My mother. Got it. Gotcha. I failed today in battle on the plains of Elysium or the left-field warning track of the Holy Cow Stadium and Megachurch. I was struck down by General Mr. Clean and I sustained an injury that I don't think I will ever recover from or will ever want to recover from. Ken, can we stop you for a second? How would someone in 2021 language describe what happened in the sixth inning? Oh, a ball hit off my head for a home run. You Jose Canseco'd yourself. Yeah, I Jose Canseco'd myself. <laughs> that fucking geek. Mr. Clean smoked one out the left field for an easy fly out. And this fucking Stu Gatz took it right off the dome. And the ball went over the fence for a home run. My God. He's sitting there on his stupid ass rubbing his dumb fucking head. And Jesus fucking Christ, people are laughing. I mean, there's a lot of violence happening tonight. People are dying. But in this moment, everybody has stopped to join together in laughter at this poor, stupid bastard. one nothing Gambinos. And as Ken Burns felt the welt grow upon his head that day, and all days beyond when the welt refused to shrink, he was forced from that day on to adopt a permanent child-type bowl cut upon his head. Oh, I was going to ask about that. Seventh inning, Burt Reynolds. Well, I was in town doing reshoots for my new movie, Dick Stick'em Up, and I went to do a little tootski in the bathroom. 
I can say that, right? This is Hustler Radio. I'm allowed to say I do cocaine. No? Well, I was doing cocaine. I already said I was. Burt Reynolds bore witness to a number of people trying to assassinate Mr. Clean and also trying to assassinate each other. At this point, some of the mobsters were trying to kill Mr. Clean. And some of the mobsters thought that the other mobsters were rats because they hadn't heard about the whole smoke and aces thing. But those two groups of mobsters all had to hide from the brethren because they were going around trying to kill them. So I walked out of a different bathroom a few minutes later. Went up the left nostril that time. I saw one of those frowny guys holding the crossbow and he fired it through a popcorn machine at a chubby Italian man holding an AK-47. And I said, Nashville? I thought this was a music town. At this point, Buddy Dwyer had unleashed Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, believing that without Opie White, the Pickers would struggle to do better than the Gambino's lone run. The game seemed to be a foregone conclusion, and attention gradually shifted to the well above average amount of bloodshed happening in and around the fans. So I got thrown out of the women's bathroom and made my way back to my seat. Saw there was a tan fellow with shiny hair about three seats wide sitting in my spot. Strange of all, this wop's got a telescope. I said, hey, Galileo, these are Burt Reynolds seats. I don't know what you need that for. Got up close, and sure enough, that telescope was attached to a rifle. Pointed right at Mr. Clean. Now, there was no love lost between me and Mr. Clean. We both took a run at Cloris Leachman right after young Frankenstein came out. And let's just say the better man lost. But my training kicked in, and I gator wrestled the assassin down to the ground. Said, easy, girl, shh, and I hogtied him. Pretty clean job. Then one of the frowny face guys came up with a scimitar and lopped his head clean off. And I said, Nashville? <laughs> I thought this was a music town. Jesus Christ. Eighth inning. Little Petey Sock. Petey Sock was nine years old, and Mr. Clean was his favorite baseball player. It wasn't easy being a Gambinos fan in Nashville. When the local kids found out, they would stuff you in an old tire and roll you into the creek. They called it the taxi, and they would stick a ball of horseshit in my pocket and call it my cab fare to send me back to New York. This is a 50-year-old Peter Sock recalling what he saw in Game 6 and his interaction with Mr. Clean. I would hang out by the Gambino's dugout waiting for autographs. Finally, after the seventh inning, my dream came true. Mr. Clean came up to me and asked me if I wanted an autograph. So I handed him a baseball and a pen, and he began writing on it. And he kept writing and writing and writing. How long did he write for? The whole inning. After he ran out of space on the ball, he grabbed a baseball bat and started writing on that. And then he made Alan Woody give him his jersey off his back, and he started writing on that. I thought it was a bit strange, but remember, I was nine. I was just so excited. When I finally got all that memorabilia back with all that frantic writing scribbled on it, I just figured he had signed his name a bunch of times. It wasn't until I got back home after the game that I realized what he was actually writing down. And what was that? His last will and testament. Peter Sock sent us in some pictures of the last will and testament of Mr. Clean. And it is... Really, really erotic. He details his whirlwind relationship with Isabella Gambino, their first encounter at a fundraiser for Gordon Gecko's mayoral campaign, their second encounter in the Times Square Bennigan's bathroom, their third encounter inside the Statue of Liberty lady's head, 
and their fourth encounter on the five train. Wait, did you say Gordon Gecko? Yep. The guy from Wall Street? Yeah, he was a real guy. Oh, wow. Yeah, I remember reading that and all at once discovering what sex was in all of the positions as well. So this was just him talking about his sexual encounters with Carmine Gambino's wife. That was the bulk of it. And then at the end, he predicted that he would be dead by night's end. As he wrote on Gilmore Deeds' glove, The way her breasts looked in the pale moonlight, I knew then that I would be dying for this woman. And I came to peace with that. When I die tonight, you need to avenge me, kid. If you don't kill them all, I'll show up in your dreams. And not the good dreams where I teach you how to hit homers. The bad dreams where I chase you around the mall with a knife. That combination of learning what sex was while getting haunted by my biggest hero really did a number on me. I learned that danger is the most powerful aphrodisiac of all. To this day, I am a mild-mannered family man who, three times a year, needs to pay women to tie me up to train tracks while dressed up like Babe Ruth and Willie Mays. And they use my nuts like a T-ball. All right, Peter, thank you so much for talking to us. Ninth inning, Bubba Manjang. Well, I was standing in the stadium with my cotton candy cart, listening to the ninth inning on the radio. But the game was in Nashville, Bubba. Yes, I liked to hang out in the stadium, even when the Gambinos were on the road. I never sold any cotton candy, but it was either that or go home and face some hard truths about myself and my life. Oh, I see. So I was listening to the last inning and remember Mr. Clean making the catch. It's the bottom of the ninth inning here in this stupid-ass stadium. The Gambinos are clinging to a one-run lead. I heard a lot of gunshots coming from the other booth. I wish one of those bullets would hit me in the fucking neck so I could bleed out right here. I'd rather be in fucking Albany. Runners on second and third. Two outs. Sparky Young will be pitching the... No way, you guys, you guys are kidding me. What is it? Saman Suleiman. You want me to get suspended again, really? <laughs> really funny. No chance. Park Ki Young is pitching to the pitcher's second baseman, whoever he may be, and he takes it for a ride to deep left field. Oh, fuck. This one might go. I will shoot my wife in the head if this goes out. Mr. Clean is back, and holy fucking shit, he robbed it. He robbed the home run to win the game. Holy shit. Game seven tomorrow night. Give me that fucking thing. Bang, bang. See you later, fuckheads. John Drama spent the night in jail for stealing a cop's gun and would be suspended for Game 7. I remember hearing that call, and I got so excited that I snuck down to the field and spent the next few hours pretending I was hitting infield singles and sprinting to first base. A few hours later, I look up into the stands, and Ricky the Weasel is sitting there, trying to escape from a Chinese finger trap that he'd gotten his hand stuck into. I asked what he was doing there, and he told me not to worry about it. And then he asked me if I could make him some cotton candy. So we sat there for four more hours, talking about the sins of my past and the mistakes I had made. He then asked me if I had any friends, and I told him that my only friends are the people I sell cotton candy to, because it was impossible for me to let them down. He then ate about seven pounds of cotton candy, and asked me if I'd ever seen a movie called The Friends of Eddie Coyle. 
he told me about that movie and then some other movies about hitmen that he liked for three more hours. And then I had to leave. On my way down, I saw a man who looked like Mr. Clean hanging out by the very scary Centerfield ledge. I yelled out, Hey, buddy, what are you doing here? And he yelled back, I'm getting pussy. And I yelled back, That's awesome. A few minutes later, I reached the street and a man fell from the sky and landed right next to me. That man was Mr. Clean, the hero of Game 6, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, killed the night before Game 7. This should have been the story of the year. It should have shocked the world. But it didn't. Instead, it's a footnote because of what would happen in Game 7. Next time on A Closer Look. <laughs>